Welcome to this special episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, as we mark the death and especially take time to appreciate the life of Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. When I was speaking to a colleague a year or so ago about the preparations for the Platinum Jubilee, she asked why people were making such a big deal about it. Basically, she was asking what the Queen had done other than living a long time. As we reflect on the end of this second Elizabethan era, I wanted to share some of my thoughts about that. First, I thought it would make sense to think a moment about the two Queens Elizabeth, both unlikely to come to the throne and both so significant in their times, so much so their times were named for them and their passings shook the nation. Princesses named Elizabeth. Elizabeth Tudor was born as a princess on the 7th of September, 1533. Her birth was celebrated, but her gender was a blow. Henry VIII had taken extraordinary steps to end his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and Mary Anne Boleyn, largely and primarily because he needed a son to succeed him. The birth of Elizabeth did not immediately end his marriage to Anne, but both parents had counted on the birth of a son to justify their very unpopular union. Before she turned three years old, Princess Elizabeth became Lady Elizabeth, no longer princess, no longer legitimate child, and no longer heir to the throne. Elizabeth Alexandra Mary, sometimes known as Elizabeth Windsor, was born to the Duke and Duchess of York on the 21st of April, 1926. At the time her grandfather was king, her uncle was heir to the throne, and her parents were happily living a fairly quiet life as members not at the center of the royal family. She and her sister Margaret Rose were cherished daughters. Their parents were delighted to be the parents of these two lovely little girls, and the family was incredibly popular with the public. Like her namesake, this Princess Elizabeth's life changed while she was a child. When she was 10 years old, her uncle abdicated the throne after serving as king for less than a year. Elizabeth's father became King George VI, and she became heir to the throne. Family. Elizabeth Tudor had a series of stepmothers after her own mother came to a violent end. She had complicated relationships with her half-brother Edward and her half-sister Mary, at times close and at times very strained. She was under suspicion during the reign of Edward VI and imprisoned in the Tower of London during the reign of Mary I. She had a distant relationship with her father, Henry VIII, living mostly away from him during his lifetime and invoking his image and reputation when it suited her during her own reign. She was able to gather her mother's relatives closer to her once she became queen. Princess Elizabeth was extremely close to her parents and her sister, Margaret Rose. King George VI and his wife, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Consort, involved their daughters in their coronation, and the girls were prominently visible when the family appeared on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. This was an extraordinarily close family, which the king referred to as We Four. Throughout his reign, George VI made a significant commitment to preparing his daughter for her royal future. At the death of her father, Princess Elizabeth became Queen Elizabeth II. It was a tender time as she was devastated on a personal level to lose the father to whom she had been so close. 
the images of her draped in black standing alongside her mother and her sister sums up how everything had changed. After she became queen, she remained close with her mother and sister until both of them died within weeks of each other in 2002. For most of her life, the second Elizabeth was surrounded and supported by her mother and sister. Husband and Children For Elizabeth Tudor, the possibility of marriage began when she was an infant, and she was considered a pawn in the political maneuverings of her father and his ministers. Elizabeth's value became questionable and problematic after her father disinherited her and declared her illegitimate. But some efforts were still made throughout his reign. The possibility of being shipped off to a foreign court was always a possibility for daughters of kings, and Elizabeth and her sister Mary were no different. When she became queen, Mary I quickly began plans to marry. She chose Philip of Spain, a popular choice in Catholic Europe, but very unpopular in England. Mary very much wanted the allegiance with Spain and Catholic Europe. She would have loved nothing more than to bear a son to continue her efforts to restore Catholicism when he succeeded her on the English throne. Instead, Mary had no children and was forced to leave the throne to her sister Elizabeth. With this immediate example of what marriage and motherhood represented for a sovereign queen, it's little wonder Elizabeth frequently expressed reluctance to marry and have children. She knew the perils of marrying abroad and of marrying an Englishman. She knew the double-edged sword of a female monarch having a son at a time when many believed a baby boy was a better ruler than an adult woman. She saw this play out with Mary Queen of Scots and baby Prince James. So Elizabeth I remained unmarried and had no children, eventually leaving the throne to her relative and the son of Mary Queen of Scots, James VI of Scotland. Princess Elizabeth is said to have fallen for the handsome Philip Mountbatten as a young teenager and never seriously considered anyone else his partner. Philip was a prince of Greece and in line to the throne of Greece and Denmark. The family name Battenberg was eventually changed to the more British Mountbatten, and Philip was sent to live in the United Kingdom with his maternal grandmother. He went to the Royal Naval College and trained for the Royal Navy, fighting for Britain in World War II, even as two of his brother-in-law fought for the Germans. His family ties and close connections to Germany were reasons that the king and queen were not necessarily immediately on board with his marrying Elizabeth. Even so, Elizabeth and Philip corresponded for years, and in the summer of 1946, he asked the king for permission to marry the princess. He gave up his Greek and Danish royal titles and became a naturalized British citizen. In July 1947, the engagement of Elizabeth and Philip was officially announced, and the two were married in November of that year. At her wedding, the king, George VI, wrote his daughter a very moving letter. Quote, I was so proud and thrilled at having you close to me on our long walk in Westminster Abbey. But when I handed you to the archbishop, I felt I had lost something very precious. You were so calm and composed during the service and said your words with such conviction, I knew everything was all right. I have watched you grow up all those years uh, with pride under the skillful direction of mummy, who, as you know, is the most marvelous person in the world in my eyes. And I can, I know, always count on you 
and now Philip, to help us in our work. Your leaving has left a great blank in our lives, but do remember that your old home is still yours, and do come back to it as much and as often as possible. I can see that you are sublimely happy with Philip, which is right, but don't forget us is the wish of your ever-loving and devoted papa. Initially, the princess was known as the Duchess of Edinburgh, as Philip had been created Duke of Edinburgh right before the wedding. The Duke and Duchess had two children, Charles, born in 1948, and Anne, born in 1950. That's two children while they were Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh. Young Charles participated in the coronation of his mother in 1953, and both Charles and Anne appeared with the Queen and Duke of Edinburgh on the balcony to the cheering crowds below. Two other sons followed, Andrew in 1960 and Edward in 1964. The queen was devoted to and appreciative of her husband, whom she described as, quote, my strength and stay. The relationship with her children has been more problematic for the queen, as the marriages of Anne, Andrew, and particularly Charles ended in divorce, with Andrews and Charles's being played out dramatically and embarrassingly in full view of the public. Through it all, the queen kept her family close and rallied on. One of the great personal tragedies for the queen was the death of her beloved Philip in April of 2021. The image of her sitting alone in grief to adhere to the COVID guidelines, looking so small and vulnerable at the funeral, became an iconic representation of her ongoing devotion to the nation. Her four children were at her side at the end of her life. Legacies. Elizabeth I ruled for nearly 45 years. She was the longest ruling Tudor monarch and took the dynasty barely into the 17th century. As is true of most governments, hers was complicated, but certainly she mastered the art of royal public relations, a skill I believe she inherited from her grandfather. Henry VII gave us the Tudor Rose. Elizabeth I became the Tudor Rose. Understanding the need to be seen and cultivate the goodwill of her people, Elizabeth put her charismatic personality on display from her coronation procession, where she stopped along the way to have conversations with all ranks of people, Elizabeth I made a consistent effort to connect with her people. She undertook more than 25 progresses through her kingdom, often traveling on horseback or in open carriages so she could be seen. She became the icon of Elizabeth of England's new place on the European stage, delivering a rousing speech at Tilbury in the face of the threat of the Spanish Armada. Eventually, Elizabeth became more presence than person. The real woman, hidden under layers of makeup and yards of the finest clothing and jewels. She was immortalized in verse and portraits as Gloriana, the heart of the first Elizabethan age. And now for the legacies of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. When she came to the throne, she was 25 years old, the same age as the first Elizabeth. Even before she became queen, she demonstrated her commitment to her role in a public address she delivered while traveling in Cape Town. To commemorate her 21st birthday, she made this promise, quote, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service 
and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. It was a heartfelt pledge, and she spent the rest of her life fulfilling it. There are many milestones over the remarkable 70 years of the Queen's reign. It started with her accession when she heard about her father's death while representing him on a Commonwealth tour. She was in Kenya when her father died, and it took a bit of time for members of the government to locate her. The princess's secretary, Martin Charteris, learned of the king's death through a journalist, confirmed the news, and took the news to the princess. The Duke of Edinburgh delivered the news to his wife and his new queen. Elizabeth had become queen the moment her father died. Speaking of this event, Lady Pamela Hicks, who was a cousin of the Duke of Edinburgh, described how Princess Elizabeth had climbed up the ladder to her lodging in Kenya, climbing up as a princess, and then climbing down as the queen. Queen Elizabeth's coronation was a public statement that her reign would combine tradition and progress. It was the first coronation to be broadcast live on television, watched by about two-thirds of the population of the United Kingdom and millions more around the world. The whole world was invited into Westminster Abbey to watch St. Edward's crown be placed on the head of the new monarch. It was Philip who led the monarchy into the future. He had a large role in the coronation and was determined it be televised. It was the first of many steps to modernize the monarchy. The Queen inaugurated the first walkabout in 1970. It's now a staple of nearly every royal visit anywhere. But that very first experience of going into the crowd and shaking hands happened during a tour of Australia and New Zealand. The Queen broke royal tradition when she walked over to the crowd and spoke directly with the people in person instead of waving to them from a distance. It was in Sydney that Sir William Hesselstein, the Queen's secretary at the time, suggested she interact directly with people that had gathered. It was also Hesselstein who was the driving force, along with the Duke of Edinburgh, behind the 1969 documentary about the royal family. The most traveled monarch in British history, the Queen made some particularly historic visits. In 1965, she and Philip went to the Federal Republic of Germany, of course, that's also known as West Germany, for a 10-day visit. It was the first official visit to that part of the world by a British royal since 1913. The visit marked the 20th anniversary of the end of World War II and served as a symbol of the reemergence of Germany on the world stage and as a British ally. In 1986, the Queen became the first British monarch to visit the Chinese mainland. This was two years after Margaret Thatcher's government agreed to return control of Hong Kong to China in 1997. More recently, in 2011, the Queen and Prince Philip visited the Republic of Ireland, the first visit by a British monarch in a hundred years. She thought of the visit as a way to express regret for the troubles of the past and hail the beginning of a new and friendly relationship. The Queen has celebrated several jubilees before the unprecedented Platinum Jubilee this year. In 1977, she celebrated the Silver Jubilee. And then the Queen referred to that speech she had made when she was 21 and reinforced her commitment, stating, quote, I do not regret nor retract one word of it. The Royal Jubilee, the Ruby Jubilee in 1992, was a bit less positive, coming in a year that the Queen herself called an Annus Horribilis. 
That year saw the publication of Diana, Her True Story, a book that lay bare the troubles of the marriage of the Prince and Princess of Wales for all the world to read. In addition, Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson separated after revealing photographs of Sarah were published. And Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips were divorced. By the end of that year, a terrible fire would ravage the Queen's beloved Windsor Castle, and the formal separation of the Prince and Princess of Wales was announced in Parliament. In 2002, the Queen celebrated her Golden Jubilee, which was also marked by loss. In the early months of the year, Princess Margaret and Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother, the Queen's much-loved sister and mother, passed away within just a few weeks of each other. Although many thought the Queen might scale back the Jubilee events and travels, she did not. Traveling more than 40,000 miles that year to the Caribbean, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, she and Philip traveled also around the UK. The Queen was committed to being with her people around the world. Ten years later, the Queen celebrated her Diamond Jubilee, marking 60 years on the throne. She and Philip traveled around the UK, and the next generation of monarchs, of the royal family rather, made many Commonwealth tours on her behalf. Those Jubilee celebrations included a wonderful river pageant on the Thames with the largest flotilla seen on the London River in more than 300 years. There was a concert at Buckingham Palace with 10,000 tickets distributed to members of the public and up to half a million people watching on giant TV screens around the area. The Platinum Jubilee this year marked an unprecedented 70 years on the throne. I was lucky enough to be in London earlier in the year, and I was visiting with someone who lived there. It was just at the time that it had been announced the Queen had COVID. And I mentioned to to this woman that I was concerned about the Queen's health. She replied, oh, she's very strong. The Queen was very strong and was present for many of the Jubilee events. She appeared on the 2nd of June at Buckingham Palace for the military flypast, much to the delight of the crowd. That evening, she she lit the ceremonial beacon at Windsor Castle. This was one of 3,500 beacons lit around the world. The Queen also appeared on the balcony of Buckingham Palace on the 5th of June for the finale of the pageant and issued a statement thanking everyone for their good wishes. And of course, my personal favorite moment of the Jubilee was the tea party the Queen held with Paddington Bear to kick off the platinum party at the palace. The Queen's sense of humor was on full display as she slyly drew a marmalade sandwich from her infamous black handbag. It was a moment reminiscent of her appearance at the London 2012 Olympics when she joined James Bond in a helicopter trip through London and then parachuted into the opening ceremony. With a twinkle in her eye, the Queen could always be counted on to surprise and delight. The Queen also continued to work, holding the outgoing interview for her 14th Prime Minister and the incoming interview for her 15th, Liz Truss, just a couple of days before her passing. Prime Minister Truss called the Queen the rock on which modern Britain is built. Other tributes to the Queen have poured in since her death. I'd like to end with a couple from the new King, Charles III. I have to admit, I still have to think twice, so I'm sure I don't say Prince Charles, which we've all said for so long. The King, Charles III. I've seen the video of crowds waiting outside Buckingham Palace on Thursday to hear the news. When the Queen's death was announced, some in the crowd immediately began singing, 
God save the king. Such is the power of the monarchy. The king called his mother an inspiration and an example for us all, and took up her promise of lifelong service. He pointed out her sacrifices for the duty and devotion of serving as monarch, and praised her life of service. And he wished her well as she journeys to join her much-missed husband. Queen Elizabeth II was a golden thread of continuity and change during her reign, living a life of duty and service so profound, we are only beginning to realize the impact of her loss. The end of this Elizabethan age leaves us bereft and also inspires us to look to her example and carry on. I'll end this my own tribute to the remarkable Queen Elizabeth II with the words Prince Charles dedicated to his mother and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. <laughs>